children may be dismissed to junior church at this time. You know, um, I was thinking, and I'm grateful for Steve being sensitive to the Holy Spirit as he leads worship and, you know, singing, You Are My All in All, a second time as, as, you know, the Spirit leads him, leading us. And think of how awesome our God is. You know, we just finished in Sunday school the second of these Louis Giglio videos, and today's was How Great Is Our God, talking about how awesome things are, you know, 60,000 light years away, these massive suns, many, many, many times, thousands of times, hundreds of thousands of times as big as ours. And God calls them all by name. God created them by, you know, with his breath. Isn't it powerful? Isn't it awesome? And yet he cares about us. And then he talks about this little substance, a protein molecule that holds life together, laminin, which is in our genetics, really, in our DNA, and it's shaped like a cross. And I let um, someone borrow that, Isla, borrow those DVDs. If you want to after her, let me know. You know, there's two that we watch in Sunday school, Indescribable, and now How Great Is Our God. God is awesome. And do we worship him? Do, I wonder, you know, as I was walking up here, I was thinking... How often do we, how often do I miss these moments where we think, uh, only God set that up. Only God worked that out. How often do we miss certain moments? Maybe we see a, uh, something amazing, um, whether it's a sunset, whether it's the stars at night, whether it's weird weather, which is awesome too. And, you know, and just worship God for his power and his splendor and his might. And also, never, ever, ever forget to worship him for how awesome our salvation is. He has saved us. So let's, uh, we're going to go to Romans 8 here in a minute. Romans 8, 31 through 39 here in just a moment. Think with me about how awesome it is to give gifts and receive gifts. Johnny Erickson Tata is a Christian quadriplegic. Most of you have read her story or know her story. Um, it was 1968 or 69. She was injured in a diving accident. She was in the hospital for something like two years after that without even leaving the hospital. And she writes about Christmas before her diving accident versus after her diving accident. Listen to this. She says, every Christmas I think about what it was like to be on my feet during the holidays. Be on her feet. You know, she still can't be on her feet. Uh, there were parties and plays, dates and decorating, and hitting the malls. She says, my sister Jay and I would traipse through stores searching for the perfect gifts for everybody. Then came my diving accident. That Christmas, I spent at a rehab center in Baltimore. And one of the things that hurt me most was that I couldn't buy gifts. It added to the hurt I was already feeling. The way I saw it, God was asking way too much of me. This is what she's writing. Not only was the use of my body taken away at Christmas time, but I was already deprived of the joy of gift giving. Nothing was right. Everything was wrong. On the afternoon of Christmas Eve, I felt like a martyr. But Christmas morning, my heart softened. Maybe I'm concentrating too much on what God is asking of me, and not enough on what he's given me, she said. You ever think about that? She thought, maybe I'm asking too much or thinking too much of what God is asking of me and not thinking enough on what God has given me. 
She says, was my relinquishing everything unreasonable? Of course not. He gave more than everything. As Romans 8 says, this is part of the passage we're going to look at. As Romans 8 says, he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Things like profound peace, a settled soul, rock-solid contentment. She writes, as I focused on Christmas's meaning, I realized the best gift I could give him and others was myself. My mother didn't want a new dress. She wanted to see me smile. My father didn't need a new bridle for his horse. He needed his daughter to laugh. Jay, that's her sister, didn't need another sweater. She needed to see me grab hold of hope. What about you? What gifts from your heart, the ones you can't buy, can you give? God did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. And I share that little excerpt of Johnny's writing, mainly to focus on that verse, of what God gave us. God gave for you. Think about that. God gave for you. We all can have a free gift of salvation because God gave for us, for all of us. The same God, the one and only God who calls those stars by name and created everything so magnificent and amazing that for most of human history, we couldn't even see. They're just out there worshiping God, just hanging out in outer space, worshiping God. And yet, he also cares about you and me. He cares about us. He cares enough to come down and become one of us and Go to the cross for us. We're walking through Romans, and we come to the end of Romans chapter 8. And today, we're going to finish Romans chapter 8. Then next week, we're going to take a break from Romans and have a Father's Day message about being a spiritual parent. And then we'll come back to Romans, and then we're going to have a July 4th message, and then we'll come back to Romans. So it'll be kind of give you some variety the next few weeks. Romans 8, if I recall, it's like 19 times the Holy Spirit is listed in Romans 8. It's a powerful chapter, and we're going to wrap that up today. My theme today is our victory in Christ, our victory in Christ. And the point is that God gave his son for us. This shows that he is for us. If God gave his son for us, that shows he is for us. What is an argument from the greater to the lesser? What more can God do to show how much he cares about us? If he can give his son for us, he can do the smaller things to meet our needs. Remember, this is in context of God's logical order of salvation. And last week I focused on that, God's logical order of salvation, of how he brought about salvation for us. And, and this is the context. So look at verse 31, Romans 8, 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? What more can we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Oftentimes we might know that verse, and it's a powerful verse, isn't it? But sometimes we might take it out from his context. This is in the context of salvation. If God is for us, God is for our salvation, who can be against us? Think about this. God is for us. Who cares if mere humans are against us? The creator of the cosmos is for us. The creator of the cosmos wants a relationship with us. So much so that in 2 Peter, the people are coming to him and saying, why isn't Jesus coming again yet? When's he going to come again? When's he going to make things right? And Peter says, God is patient. He doesn't want any to perish. He wants all to come to repentance. 
That's why he hasn't come again. Jesus is going to come again someday. He's going to come on a war horse. He's going to make all things new. The church is going to be raptured. The tribulation period is going to come about. Eventually, a millennial reign is going to happen. The new heaven and new earth is going to happen. Why hasn't it happened yet? Because God wants more people to commit to him as Lord and Savior. He wants more people to know him. God wants a relationship with us. And if God is for us, who can be against us? As I said, the argument is from the greater to the lesser. And we're going to talk more about that in a moment. Look at verse 32, Romans 8, 32. This is the one Johnny referenced. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? He, that's God the Father, who did not spare his own son, that's Jesus, but gave him up for a few of us. No, it doesn't say a few of us, does it? But gave him up for all of us. Gave him up for us all. He who did not spare his own son. God the Father did not spare his own son. Jesus praying at Gethsemane, prayed his heart out to God. His sweat was like drops of blood. Actually, that's a real medical condition. He's crying out to God the Father saying, if it were possible, make this cup pass from me, but not my will, but your will be done. And God did not spare his own son, but but gave him up for us all. Jesus went to the cross for us in, in obedience to God the Father. It's this, it's this mystery of, of the Trinity and how the Trinity works and, and, and how Jesus does what God the Father desires. He defers to God the Father. In this passage, says, How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? If he can give his son for us, if he's willing to give his son for us, if he's willing to send Jesus to the cross for us, how will he not also graciously, in grace, grace is a free gift, graciously give us all things? God the Father did not spare his son. What does that show? It shows that he greatly cares about us. He was willing to send Jesus to the cross for us. How will he not also graciously give us all things? That means all things needed for salvation and for our life with him. God will graciously give us the Holy Spirit, right? I mean, 19 times this chapter, the Holy Spirit is listed. What do we need to live in obedience to Jesus? What do we need to live in a life following Jesus? We need the Holy Spirit. You can't do it on your own. Try your fail. I was listening to a message from R.C. Sproul yesterday morning. He's talking about Peter. And... Peter, what did he tell Jesus at the Last Supper? He said, I'll never deny you. I'll die for you. Later on that evening, early morning the next day, he denies him three times, right? And as I'm thinking about that, I thought, but you know what? It's probably the first time Peter was alone. Jesus is on trial in this kangaroo court trial. And Peter's also on trial in the courtyard by this servant girl asking him, you know him, I recognize your accent. Peter didn't have the Holy Spirit right then and there. He didn't have the Holy Spirit yet. And Jesus is on trial. And he, what did he do? Without Jesus right there by his side, what did he do? He denied him. Later, the Holy Spirit comes on the church in Acts chapter 2. And what does he do? He preaches the gospel. Thousands are saved. He who did not spare his own son, but... Gave him up for us all. How will he not also graciously give us all things? This is meaning that he will give us, graciously give us all things that we need for our life with him. Now, these are things that we need, not things that we want. 
Don't take this passage and claim it for your BMW or, or for your Mercedes car. I did pray for Mercedes and God gave me one, but I kind of worked that out by, by naming Mercedes Mercedes. But um, this isn't about that. This is about God giving us all things we need for salvation and life with him. In context, it's about God's logical order, God's logical decree of salvation. And, and it doesn't stop with the moment we commit ourselves to, to God as Lord and Savior. No, it continues our whole life persevering with him. You know, John 15, Jesus says, I'm the vine, you are the branches. Go home and cut a branch off a tree and see how long it lasts. He doesn't live that long. You won't live that long spiritually apart from Jesus either. You'll die immediately apart from Jesus. We need to be connected to the vine. We need to abide in him. We need to remain in him. And God wants that for us. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? God graciously, he freely does it. I mean, it's not like we commit our life to Jesus as Lord and Savior. And then the Holy Spirit says, wait, there's more. If you give us your credit card number, we'll give you the Holy Spirit. $10 a month or 20 or 40 with inflation. No. He graciously gives us the Holy Spirit when we commit to him as Lord and Savior. And the Holy Spirit stays with us our whole life with him. It's powerful. It's free. It's free too. Nothing else is free. I think if we charge money, more people would want to be Christians. Right? I mean, nobody thinks anything is good if it's free. I mean, they can raise prices on movies, and we'll pay for them. They can raise prices at McDonald's, and you know, whatever else, and you'll pay for them. This is totally free. And, the, and God gives us, graciously gives us with the Holy Spirit for our life with him and his presence with us. The, remember the point of Romans. God gifts us with salvation. We could not be saved by the law. Couldn't do it. You cannot be saved by the law. The Gentiles and non-Jews needed a Savior. The Jewish people needed a Savior. And the Apostle Paul has belabored that point on and on and on again throughout Romans. You need a Savior. And here he's saying, God did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also graciously give us all things? John Piper shares about this. He says, Romans 8.32 is a quintessential summary of the argument, and the argument is right word, the right word, of the first eight chapters of Paul's letters to the Romans. Romans 8.32 is a quintessential summary of the argument of the first eight chapters of Paul's letter to the Romans. There's a logic. This is a logic. I like logic. It's pretty neat. God is the author of logic. There's a logic to the greatest of all these letters. Piper says, I call this the logic of heaven. This kind of logic has a technical name. You may or may not know the name of the logic, but you definitely know how to use it. You can call it an argument or a logic from the greater to the lesser. This is the argument from the greater to the lesser. The technical name is, and I might pronounce this wrong, is a fratori, we'll just go with that. A fratori. And that is Latin for from the stronger. This is an argument from the greater to the lesser, from the stronger to the weaker. The idea is this. If you have, if you have exerted your strength to accomplish something hard then surely you can exert your strength to accomplish something easier. That's an afatory argument. Now, we can think about that in many different ways. I mean, think about it. If God can hang the stars in the sky, call them all by name, he can take care of our life, right? But this is saying, if God did not spare his own son, that's the greater. It's lesser for him to take care of our daily needs. So suppose you say to your child, please run next door and ask Mr. Smith if we can borrow his pliers. 
But your child says, but what if Mr. Smith doesn't want us to borrow his pliers? How can you persuade your child that Mr. Smith will surely loan you his pliers? By using a aphatoria and aphatoria argument. It goes like this. You say to your child, yesterday Mr. Smith was happy to let us borrow his car all day long. If he was happy for me to borrow his car, he'll be very willing for us to borrow his pliers, right? If he's comfortable to do the greater thing, let us borrow his car. The lesser thing, borrow the pliers. It's quite easy for him to do. Even children grasp aphatory arguments. Loaning his car was a greater sacrifice than loaning his pliers. Therefore, it's harder to loan his car than it will be to loan his pliers. If he was inclined to do the harder thing, then he would be willing to do the easier thing. That's the way we use aphatory arguments, and that's what's going on here. Now watch Paul use this kind of argument for the greatest, the greatest, the greatest event in the history of the world. He says God did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. That's the harder thing. Therefore, he will most certainly give us all things which with him. That's the easier thing. With this, when this argument, I like this little closing sentence from John Piper. When this argument penetrates through the calluses of familiarity, it becomes gloriously hope-filled and all-encompassing. What I like about that is the calluses of familiarity, right? We all have calluses of familiarity. We don't catch how awesome these truths are. God did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. Therefore, God can easily, graciously, freely give us everything else we need for life and godliness. Verse 33, Romans 8, 33. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. So Paul follows that verse about God not sparing his own son. And now he says, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Who are God's elect? I broke that down last week. That is the corporate church. Those are, that's the, the elect is the word uh, for the inclusive, all-encompassing church. Everybody who commits their life to Jesus as Lord and Savior. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Who shall bring any charge against the saved? And look how he says next. He says, it is God who justifies this is a question with an implied negative answer. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? No one. No one can bring a charge against God's elect. Why? It's God who justifies. What does it mean to be justified? To declare righteous. God already declared you righteous, and there's no one greater than God, so no one can bring a charge against you. Once we are saved by the blood of Jesus, your sins are washed away. They are gone. The devil can accuse you all he wants, but Jesus has paid for your sins. No one can bring a charge against you. I just want to share a little bit again from what John Piper wrote about these verses. He writes, Paul could have said here, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? And then answered, no one, we are justified. And that's true, but that's not what he said. His answer instead is, God is the one who justifies. Notice the subtle difference. God is the one who justifies. God is the one who declares us righteous. The emphasis is not on the act of being justified, but the actor. That is God. And God is the greatest. In the world of courts and laws where this language comes from, the acquittal of a judge might be overturned by a higher one, right? You can appeal. The local judge gives you a, a, a ruling and you appeal it to a higher one, right? A local judge acquits you when you're guilty, but if a governor has the right to bring a charge against you, but what if a governor acquits you, but you can go to the emperor or something like that? 
Here's the point. Above God, there's no higher courts. God is the one who justifies, and above God, there is no higher court. So who shall bring a charge against God's elect? The answer is negative. No one can bring a charge against God's elect. And if you are in Christ, that includes you. No one can bring a charge against you. The devil can accuse you all day long, all day long, all night long, and I guarantee you he wants to because he wants to bring you down. But the Apostle Paul right here is saying, if you are in Christ, you are the elect, and no one can bring a charge against you. No one. God is the one who justified. God has done it. It's done. It's taken care of. There's unshakable security in the face of tremendous suffering. If God is for us, no one can successfully be against us. If God gave his son for us, he will give us everything that is good for us. If God is the one who justifies us, no charge against you can stand. Right? I mean, anybody can bring up a charge against anyone but no charge will stand it's like you know everybody's so happy right everybody wants to say i'll call my lawyer doesn't matter if the judge doesn't give a ruling in favor of them in this case the devil or anybody can accuse you all day long but god has justified you god has declared you righteous isn't that powerful wow and be careful of that familiarity, the, the calluses of familiarity. This is so powerful. You will stand before God someday. We all will. And Jesus paid it all. And God has justified you. And there's no one greater than God. I like how the Old Testament prophets, we see this Isaiah 40, we see it in other places, they make a mockery of how the people back then, and, and we do it today, unfortunately, too. They would make their little idols, and they would say the idols can't see. They have eyes but can't see. They have ears but can't hear. They have a mouth but can't talk. But the people build their idols, and then they get down on in front of them and worship them. They can't see, they can't hear, they can't talk, they can't do anything. God's not that way. I like, notice if you read through the Old Testament, it always calls God the living God. He's the living God, and he has justified you, has declared you righteous, and there's no one greater. The next verse uh, builds on this. Look at verses 34 through 36. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Who is to condemn? No one. Why? Christ Jesus is one who died. More than that, who was raised. He's not dead anymore. Who is at the right hand of God? Notice how he builds this argument. Who is to condemn? It's an implied negative answer. No one can condemn you. No one can bring a charge against God's elect. No one. Romans 8 is so awesome. See it? It's, a quit. it's like the most important chapter in the Bible. It's awesome. Who is to condemn? No one. Why? Christ Jesus is the one who died. He died for you. More than that, who was raised? More than that. How can we get more than the resurrection? This is how. He's at the right hand of God the Father. He's interceding for us. He's interceding for us. He's going to God the Father on our behalf. Nothing can separate us. If you are in Christ, no one can condemn you. Jesus has saved you. Jesus died and was raised. He's at the right hand of God. And the right hand is a place of authority. He's interceding for you. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Remember, if God sent Jesus to the cross for us, what more can God do to show you that he cares? No one can separate us. Tribulation? No. 
not going to separate us. Distress, not going to separate us. Persecution, not going to separate us from Christ. Famine, not going to separate us from Christ. Nakedness, not going to separate you from Christ. Danger, not going to separate you from Christ. Sword, not going to separate you from Christ. Nothing can separate you from God's love. And right here, the Apostle Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, goes to great lengths to show that. And these were all real fears that they dealt with. And we don't generally deal with them. But the point is nothing. And you know what's interesting? What's awesome? The devil tries to use all those things to pull us from God. But what happens most of the time? They draw us to God. Genesis chapter 50 verse 20. Joseph and his brothers. He says, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. How often does God take these hardships and turn them around and use them for good. Johnny Erickson Tata, quadriplegic for something like 52 years now. And God has grown her closer to him, and God has recharged her, and God has redeemed that. Look at verses, well, at the end of this, uh, Paul cites Psalm 44, 22. Now let's look at verses 37 through 39. No, 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 in all these things we are more than conquerors. Through him who loved us. And all these things, what things? Dangers and persecution and famine and nakedness and hunger and all that. And all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither, now Paul builds on it again. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else. And all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Is that awesome? Amen? This is powerful. This is awesome. This is exciting. And this is the crescendo of how Paul builds and ends Romans 8. We are more than conquerors, but how? Through God who loved us. Because of the salvation that God freely, freely gives us, we are more than conquerors. But not because of what we do, but because of what he has done. It's all about Jesus. Paul repeats with great deal detail that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And notice the end. In Christ Jesus our Lord. Never forget that. It's about Christ Jesus, and it's about Christ Jesus being our Lord. I'll never forget a pastor on Christian radio, don't even know who it was, saying many times we want God to be sovereign, but we don't want him to be in control. We might want him to be able to be in control, but maybe we don't want to bow the knee to him. Even if we say we believe in him, are we committed to him? Are we making him the Lord of our life? This says, in Christ Jesus our Lord. God knows it's best for us to put him at the center of our life. Just like the example I've given a number of times, it's best for the earth to have its place around the sun and let the sun be the center. It wouldn't work if the earth tried to be the, the, the center. And it does not work in the Christian life if we try to take Jesus off the throne. We need to make, and we'll fail, we'll mess up, but we need to repent and move on. We need to try to make Jesus our Lord. There's a pastor, Robert Bruce. Robert Bruce. And this happened in 1631. 1631. In August of 1631, Bruce was very elderly and weak in body. At breakfast one morning, having eaten his normal portion of eggs, he asked his daughter for more eggs. 
As she went to prepare it, he called her to wait, for his master was calling. After a short time of meditation, he asked his daughter to get his Bible and open it to Romans chapter 8. Having read the chapter, he turned to his family and said, Now, God be with you, my children. I have breakfasted with you and shall now sup with my Lord Jesus Christ this night. He died shortly thereafter. And he was a victor. He was more than conquerors because in Christ Jesus, he did have supper with Christ Jesus. We have salvation. We have eternal life freely given through Jesus. We are more than conquerors in Christ Jesus. But we do have to go through life with Jesus. We have to go through life with Jesus. In a Leadership Journal article, John Ortberg, John Ortberg argues that sometimes stressful and painful situations can actually help us grow. Sometimes stressful and painful situations can actually help us grow. John Ortberg creates the following scenario. scenario. Listen to this. Imagine you're handed a script of your newborn child's entire life. You got a baby, baby's born, and you're given a script. This is your newborn child's entire life. Better yet, you're given an eraser, and you have five minutes to edit out whatever you want. You read in that script that she will have a learning disability in grade school. Reading, which comes easily for some kids, will be laborious for her. In high school, she will make a great circle of friends, then one of them will die of cancer. After high school, she will go into her preferred college, but while there, she will lose a leg in a car accident. Following that, she will go through a difficult depression. A few years later, she'll get a great job, then lose that job in an economic downturn. Remember, this is all in the script you're reading as you hold your newborn. And you're determining, what should I erase? She'll get married, but then go through the grief of separation in the script. With this script of your child's life, in five minutes to edit it, what would you erase? Psychologist Jonathan Haidt poses this question in this hypothetical exercise. Wouldn't you want to take out all the stuff that would cause them pain? We would, wouldn't we? I would. If you could erase every failure, disappointment, and period of suffering, would that be a good idea? Would that cause them to grow into the best version of themselves? Think about that. You are going to erase every suffering, every failure. And when you erase that, would that cause them to grow into the best version of themselves? Is it possible that we actually need adversity and setbacks, maybe even crisis and trauma, to reach the fullest potential of development and growth? John Ortberg contends that God doesn't always erase all our stress and pain before it starts. Indeed, God can use the failures, disappointments, and periods of suffering to help us grow. John Ortberg writes, God isn't at work producing the circumstances I want. God is at work in bad circumstances to produce the me he wants. This is a powerful passage about our awesome salvation. And the neat thing is, when we are in Christ, we are in him, and he is in us.
And no matter what we face, no matter what we go through, we're not alone. The Holy Spirit is with us. And since God did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, we have a promise. He did the greater. He'll graciously give us all things we need. Everything we need for our life, living and following him. Let's pray. Lord God, this is an awesome passage. And I know I and we have just barely scratched the surface of this passage. Oh, Lord God. Some of us, I know, need that encouragement right now. The encouragement knowing, oh God, you did not spare your own son. You're going to give them what they need for what they're going through. Hopefully, first and foremost, they've turned their life over to you. But still, you're going to give them what they need. The abundant, filling power of the Holy Spirit. You're going to give them what they need. Lord God, help us to rest in that confidence. Oh, Lord God, help us to rest in that truth. I pray that you would encourage right now those that need encouraged. Convict those that need convicted. Maybe some, they're not experiencing the power of the Holy Spirit because they're living in sin and they need to repent of that. Maybe they've been Christians for years, but they are living in sin and they've quenched the Holy Spirit, really. I pray that today would be the day to repent of that sin and turn to you. Others here, Lord, maybe they've always believed in you, but... They haven't made you Lord of their life. In reality, they have many other things on the throne. Lord God, I pray today would be the day where they repent and say, Lord, I believed in you. I believed you're the Savior. But today I want to make you my Lord and Savior. And certainly they can tell you that in a prayer. No magical perfect formula, but just Jesus, I believe in you. I'm committing my life to you. Today I'm going to make you my Lord. Oh, Lord God. We all have ups and downs spiritually. Help us all to continually persevere following you. Knowing, knowing the power of this passage. That you graciously give us all things we need for salvation and for our life with you. We thank you, Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen. As